to Butter With That, a movie podcast where a bunch of friends from Philly talk about movies. This month, we are talking about magic movies, movies with elements of any and all sort of magic. Last week, we had an awesome chat about Mary Poppins and everything magical about that production. This week, we're going to talk about some other elements of magic, but before we reveal our big movie chat for tonight. Uh, I want to just check in with everyone. We've got Dave, Sam, and Connor here with us. How are you all doing? By the time this comes out, I hopefully will have seen the tragedy of Macbeth. I've read a whole lot of different reviews, um, so I'm very curious to see how I'll feel about it. I love Macbeth. We talked about it on um, our Kurosawa, my Kurosawa episode with Throne of Blood. Um, this cast is amazing. Very interesting cinematography. It's just Joel Cohen, no Ethan to be found. So, um, Dave, I know you're also anticipating this movie. I'm so, braving the uh, um, the harshness of uh, the environment we all live in tomorrow to go check it out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, tomorrow, nice. Let me know what you think. Um, so, I definitely want to see that. That might be my birthday's uh, soon, so uh, I might take a trip up to Bryn Mawr Film Institute. I've never been there, um, so it's playing there. So, I might see it. Um, so anticipating that, but I did revisit, uh, an old favorite, which was, a maybe one I was going to pick for magic month, but I don't think I will is Tim Allen's the Santa Claus. Um, <laughs> I think longtime listeners and personal friends will know that I have a huge soft spot for the Santa Claus trilogy. Um, every time I watch the first, the Santa Claus, I feel like I appreciate it even more and the weird questions and the weird universe that it creates. And so I rewatch, I, I try to watch that and Muppet Christmas Carol every Christmas, every kind of Christmas season. Muppet Christmas Carol, way better movie, but the Santa Claus has a really special place in my heart. Um, and I really recommend everybody watches it. And I think the sequels as well. And the second one, he has to essentially kidnap a woman to turn into his wife so he can stay Santa Claus or Christmas ends. And the third one, Jack Frost turns the North Pole into Disneyland and Martin Short plays Jack Frost. So it's like a large vine tree or Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> it's only a smallish part of the movie, but it's as, as far as a G rated end cap of a trilogy go for a Tim Allen Santa Claus movie. I think that there's some interesting stuff in the third one. Um, so my ranking, if anybody cares, goes one, three and two of the Santa Claus movies. So I watched the Santa Claus revisiting a favorite. My favorite scene is when they go, when he burns the turkey or whatever chicken in the oven, and then they have to go to Denny's and it's an, it's an Asian businessman in one room. And then the other room is all these divorced dads who have various injuries and burns and disappointed kids at the table. And so I love that scene of the divorced dad Denny's. So yeah, I recommend the Santa Claus on Disney plus Tim Allen, incredibly complicated figure but I think he's pretty good in the movie. Connor, I cannot think about the Santa Claus without thinking about our dear and lovely friend, Alana, um, mm -hmm. in which Alana told me that the type of people she's interested in is mid-transition Tim Allen between like regular guy and Santa Claus. That will stay with me till the day I die. I'll be on my deathbed thinking about that, Alana. I need you to know. That was a huge moment of bonding for Alana and I when we <laughs> discovered our mutual love of the Santa Claus. 
from one confusing thing to the next, um, the a movie I saw recently is called The Guilty with Jake Gyllenhaal. Essentially, he is a, uh, a police officer that uh, gets into some sticky business. He kills a kid. Um, and so he's been... Uh, kicked off active duty and said is a 911 dispatcher and um he gets this like really terrifying call of a woman who he thinks has been kidnapped and then the movie um follows through that and it is anxiety filled it is a ride it makes me like hate cops even more honestly like a cab including officer Jake Gyllenhaal but it was a super, super interesting idea, especially I love the show 911. Um, so I, I enjoyed it in that part. Are there two more different movies than The Santa Claus and Guilty, The Guilty? The Guilty, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Well, wild card to shuffle into the deck, uh, no pun intended for this week's episode, would be a movie that I saw over the holiday. That would be a, a Hulu original called Plan B. As a Natalie Morales film, I was really blown away by it. It's a really fantastic, sweet little film that is about, well, it's, it's sort of like a coming of age, like raunchy teen comedy. And I mean, like raunchy where the capital R, it does have like an almost like extended Dirk Diggler at the end of Boogie Night scene at one point in the film. <laughs> but it's also really heartfelt and a really interesting exploration of the uh, restriction of reproductive rights for women in specifically South Dakota, but in legislation that is reflected nationwide. So a uh, really interesting movie that was really heartfelt and uh, turns in two of the best performances I've seen this year from its two leads. So I would recommend that, uh, although I would caution folks that it is a raunchy teen comedy uh, in, in every way you might expect, but is very, very good movie. That sounds great. Yeah. When you rec or when you had mentioned it in the group chat, I looked it up. I was like, Ooh, that, that looks good. I got to make up a new email to get a Hulu, another free Hulu subscription. <laughs> so as soon <laughs> as I do that, <laughs> I'll uh, put that on my to watch list. Well, great, uh, summary of recent watches. We are going to now transition into our next magic month movie, which is called in and of itself. Uh, this movie came out in 2020, at the end of 2020, I believe, and I think on Hulu towards the beginning of 2021. Uh, and it is a film version of a an off-Broadway stage play that, or production, I should say, that was written and created by uh, performance artist, magician, actor, visual artist, Derek Del Gaudio. And the movie version, and uh, the stage production also... Um, was directed by Frank Oz, and this film version is directed by him as well. Frank Oz, known uh, as a puppeteer, actor, director, most famously known for creating and voicing Yoda. <laughs> Thank you, Connor. I didn't have that in my notes, and what Connor was like, I can't believe you don't have this in your notes. So that, uh, you know, suggests my a hole in my knowledge, uh, and his general work on Muppets productions. So... So yeah, this movie actually was recommended to me by a good friend. She had actually seen Del Gaudio's play or production in New York and had 
talked about how this was one of the most impactful and intense theater performances she had gone to. And like also its blend of magic, illusion, storytelling. So the film is kind of hard to fully describe. It doesn't quite have a synopsis, but the easiest way to describe it is a, it's essentially a composite of several of the 552 shows that Del Gaudio uh, performed in New York between, I believe, 2016 and 2018. It, so it, you, you get a, the full show uh, through the film, but it also presents different nights of performance, different audio or audience reactions and participation. And so you get a full sense of how the production is both the same uh, but also how it's very much uh, shaped by audience participation and changes night to night. Uh, I had never heard of this. I had never heard of Derek Del Gaudio. And so in preparation for this episode, I started researching him and looking him up and, and uh, getting a sense of, of who he, who he is. And as I mentioned, he kind of wants to not just describe himself or identify as a magician, uh, his background is in card hand, card dealing, performance art, visual art as well. He he worked in Los Angeles as a bust out dealer, which is a phrase I had never heard of. It's someone who is a sleight of hand expert hired to secretly favor specific players in a high roller in high roller poker games using deals and shuffles to ensure that the house wins a lot of the time. And so he really built his card trick chops through dealing in those ways. He worked at the Magic Castle, which is a big L.A. magic venue. Uh, he was titled Magician of the Year in 2016. He also consulted on Christopher Nolan's film The Prestige, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. So he's really well regarded, very famous within the ma- ma- magic world. And he's also uh, a big favorite of Stephen Colbert, who also ended up producing the film. I think he really helped translate this film stage show into a film because he went to see it and was so impacted by it turned into a movie from what i understand was this everyone's first time seeing this yes it was my first time seeing it had you ever heard of derek del gaudio yeah i've never seen it i haven't heard of him this was a totally new fresh experience yeah same so we were all, I think, and as I said, I had never heard of him, went into watching this film knowing absolutely nothing, which based on reviews I've read was kind of the suggested way of both seeing the production and seeing the movie. So I have some questions that I wanted to kind of delve into, but I'll first kind of open it up to the group with, uh, yeah, I would say let's start off with what are our kind of What's our background with magic or have we been to a lot of magic shows or what's kind of our feelings about going to magic shows and engaging in the performance of illusion and magic? This pick and the idea of magic is interesting. Uh, I was a theater major for those who don't know in college. And so I love the idea of uh, performance and what a performer can do to win over or to alienate an audience. So I, I like the idea of magic. Um, I think it's done incredibly well in many movies, such as the prestige, which you name dropped of like the world of magicians and who magicians are. I don't think I'm personally enamored with like a magic show, but the idea of sleight of hand of, and I think what he does in this 
quote film i'm sure we'll talk about is this a movie or you know, film or not what does that even mean um i think a magician going this route with like a performance i think is really interesting and for me i was pretty compelled for a lot of the movie so i i think that's kind of where i stand on magic yeah i mean i want to make a like a clear distinction between like magic witchcraft and then magic with like sleight of hand and like the harry houdini chris angel um those types of people um when it comes to like performative magic like chris angel or whatever that other david blaine um i think is what i think um i think they're like a little bit of pukes but you know what i'm always interested to see what they have to offer that's interesting that's a really important distinction too sam when we when we say and think about magic there's so many definitions and connections and associations with magic well as uh as i'm sure we'll cover when this this experiment is laid out to the audience there are note cards uh, at the entrance of the theater saying, I am such and such, and then it will be a noun, a descriptive noun of what a person could be, what identity they feel best suits them. In this context, I would have to go ahead and tear down the uh, I am a skeptic note card. I am a skeptic of both magic with a C and K. I just, it's it's not for me. Uh, I respect people of all, of, all, of all beliefs, as long as it doesn't hurt or, or obstruct anyone else's lives. But, you know, believe what you want. But for me, uh, I my mind is just wired to seek explanations, practical explanations. So when I watch Sleight of Hand magic in particular, uh, I am more often than not trying to unriddle something rather than experiencing it. So I was trying to trying not to do that while watching this, which was difficult. <laughs> yeah, I... I... I would say my relationship to magic is I love magic shows. And I think I love magic shows with a recognition that I think I'm also at many times a skeptic and trying to figure out sort of the machinations at work of what's going on. But I also just love the magic. Now I'm speaking for position. I haven't seen a whole lot of magic shows, but I did go to a magic show for my mom's birthday. And that was a hilarious experience. And I think I just love the environment of magic shows where everyone's kind of giddy to like see what's going to happen. And there's something and the showmanship of it, I find just charming and hilarious. And, and so I think that this show is very interesting. Uh, and what Del Gaudio has written and envisioned for his performance is sort of, there's certainly elements of sleight of hand card tricks, uh, disappearing acts, all of sort of the staples of a magic show. But at the heart of it, he has talked about how he really wanted to write a show that's an exploration of identity, of audience connection, of of vulnerability, and really kind of pick apart what it means to be a, a performer in this industry, too. He really explores the themes of sort of transactional natures between audience and magician and, and performer and how and and people's perceptions of each other and assumptions of each other. And he he frames his show in a in a way that's it's like a kind of a one man show. Uh, elements of he and he uh, weaves elements of storytelling for uh, storytelling from his own life uh, allows audience members to share elements of their lives and aspects of storytelling that they draw from their own experiences to kind of weave a tapestry of as we said performance art storytelling visual narratives and uh, and magic 
So I guess a question I'm really curious to know is what do you, I guess it's a two-part question. What do you think this movie can uniquely depict by being a movie version of the show that an in-person just attending a show could not. And on the flip side, what do you think is missing by translating this show into a movie? So I really appreciated the fact that we got to see multiple nights um, because, you know, I am also a skeptic. And so I wanted to be like, well, that's a plant. So is this, of course he would pull that. That's easy. And we get to see that it was, you know, different identities every night, different people every night. And I like to see that we got, um, he, he, he does a thing in a show where he picks someone to return the next day and he kicks them out of the room, uh, before they get to watch the end of the show and they get to essentially like talk about what the show was up until that point and then make up an ending. Um, and seeing the people write their own and, and how, how they all came back. They all came back. They all wrote their own endings. Some were like really personal that made them cry. Some were just kind of funny. Um, I appreciated seeing that, um, you know, he, he, he did follow through on some of these acts and okay, it wasn't a plant and it, it was real maybe. Um, but I think that when it comes to the emotional intimacy, I'm normally someone who cries at the drop of a hat, like truly. Um, and I, I just couldn't, I couldn't with this because it felt so insincere. Um, I don't know if that's something that would have changed if I was there in person, probably, because again, I'm emotional mess, but, um, maybe, maybe being near the people who were having such a sincere reaction to this guy would have gotten me a little bit more. Yeah. Real, like definitely really interesting point, Sam, about what does it mean to be there in person and be experiencing this in real time with with other people. Yeah, and I suppose having said that, obviously none of us have seen the show in person. Um, but that that being the case, I mean, I suppose this reminds me a lot of like, um, a lot of what Bo Burnham had to say about the end of his not most recent special Inside, but uh, the one before that, Make Happy. It was shot over multiple different nights and in some instances was shot without an audience which I think this probably does as well. There are a lot of close-up sequences that apparently, from what I've heard of people that did go see the show, aren't included at that length in the show because it does afford the viewer a more focused intimacy on him specifically by by removing the audience and zeroing in on what he's doing in a cinematic way, which I think it handles well. I think the cinematography and layout of this is really, really well handled. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I would have gotten more or less from it seeing it in person. I think it was really interesting to see it laid out so cinematically and with those 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 moments where you're taking advantage of the medium versus the live performance to to zero in an audience focus um, visually. <clears throat> I do also think it's interesting, Sam, that you thought that multiple viewings or uh, filming multiple shows lent authenticity to it. Because my initial skepticism of it, that my skepticism brain kicked in in the opposite way, where it was like, oh, okay, well, maybe this night that person didn't react this way. So let's make sure we film a bunch. But I don't know. Uh, it feels, it's really hard to say how authentic it was to every performance. But I think having, again, having not seen it, it lends itself, the edited version that we're treated to lends itself to a cinematic treatment of a general reception, as far as what I've heard. You bring up 
two really great points. Uh, one is sort of the, the camera techniques that the movie employs to do close up this close ups of his face and things that an audience member might not be able to see as closely. I, he, he breaks down into tears at one point and there's definitely close ups uh, of his face and you're really studying his emotional responses and things like that and studying his mannerisms. Um, so there's definitely camera work that is done maybe through just staging it without an audience. And there are also some uh, uh, point or uh, this question of authenticity, which I want to re return back to uh, this idea of does his show need to ultimately be authentic or does it like does it matter? I, or, or what do we even mean by authenticity? But yeah, that's another thing that my brain, I guess just because of the one man show nature of it does bounce me back to uh, inside another Burnham, another Burnham treaty that just came out this past year, which is like, there are elements of that that are obviously like highly emotional, but they are performative, which I, th I think is very much true here. I think that there is an underlying emotional undercurrent that is honest to it, but there is still a self-awareness to the fact that it is performed, which I don't think detracts from it. I think it just makes it more layered and complex. So I found that element of it pretty interesting. Yeah. So many, so many layers to this, to this performance. Yeah. I think for me, what <clears throat> ties into this idea of authenticity is its connection to artifice. Theater is like as fake as it gets in terms of like, we're, of course, we're not Macbeth. We're not king, a king of Scotland standing on the stage. Like that's all fake. It's all pretend. And so what I thought was really wonderful about this piece was that it really deconstructs the artifice of an audience of who are the people like it's tough to tell in the way they filmed it but it looks like a lot of it is with lights on an audience it's not darkness you're not there's no um you know proscenium curtains ending acts mm. or it's all your we are all together in a room which is sort of the most powerful theatrical experience even cinematic theatrical experience that we as people, you know, as humans in a society can experience. Um, and so I think it's really interesting of breaking down. We all select who we are. And then I guess he calls us out on who we think we are in some good ways or some bad ways at the end. I'm not a, that's sort of confused about what his I am cards are trying to accomplish. Clearly it has this powerful effect on folks. And I think how he walks into the audience and just sort of the structure of this show of this performance, I think does a really excellent job of breaking down the artifice of theater and trying to create a piece that everybody experiences together, not just something that we passively engage with. So I think in that way, the reaction of the audience is incredibly authentic, at least according to what we saw over the course of these, however many shows that they filmed. It looks like two, it looks like about a dozen or so, which is really impressive. And I think as a film, does it work? I, I don't know. And at the end, when he walks into the audience and one by one predicts what everybody's I am card they pulled and successfully does it according to the film, that's when I like zoned out the most. Cause it was just sort of like, okay, I get it. You sit down, you sit down. And it's like, it's like a 15 minute part of this 90 minute special. And so I guess I'm just sort of like really appreciated what in the moment he was trying to create, but as a film, I'm happy it's preserved. So that way we can now look at this piece of theater that existed like four or five years ago at this point. Um, and I think all pieces of theater should be filmed in a similar way. At least that's my opinion. 
Um, Hamilton is a really standout example of filming it over the course of three full packed out show nights and then like three or four nights of doing close-ups with an empty theater after they did the full performance that day, that night. So I'm glad it exists. And I was really interested to kind of think about how they filmed it. But I think for me as an audience member of a film, I felt disconnected, I think in a good way, (laughs) a way that probably he intended, maybe in like a Brecht tradition of alienation of we are not watching a play, we are watching a performance, like we're watching somebody on a stage talking about how they feel and how they see the world and their experiences. I think it was it was tough for me to really dig deep into what I think he was trying to accomplish. That said, I watched this with a group of friends. None of us touched our phones the full 90 minutes. <laughs> Even though we were distracted and we were kind of chit-chatting throughout it, our phones were like down the whole time. So I think he was successful in accomplishing something with the film version. I don't know if I can put my finger on right now what that accomplishment was, if that makes sense. Connor, I 100% agree. I watched it with roommates. None of us, we were talking to each other, but again, not on our phones whatsoever. I really wish that this had been two separate entities. Um, One when he's doing the sleight of hand tricks and then the other, the storytelling. He's a great storyteller. Like truly, Mm -hmm. I was so captivated by certain things. Um, However, though, and and maybe this is just because like I'm not necessarily a theater person. Some of his exaggerated actions made me call, like I was like, he's a little bitch, you know? So like it, 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 took me out that's pretty harsh (laughs) yeah well i'm a bit of a bitch um it took me out of it in some ways when i was like i can't i don't want to see this like absolute loser um do this magic trick like i don't want to see that i'm sorry i just don't um it it really grew on me as the the movie went on and i was like oh you know like i'm digging this i'm digging that and then he would do something and it would take me out immediately and i was like oh you 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 did that you 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 did it you did it again um which is disappointing but i was i would say that i was really captivated by this film I think something that's so fascinating about his show is that he's incorporating stories from his own life um, and drawing, you know, from really, really formative periods in his life as he sort of pairs each of them with a particular magic trick. So I don't know if I agree, Sam. I I don't I think the storytelling and the and the magic uh, tricks or whatever you want to call them are I think those are necessarily intertwined because the whole point is pairing personal narrative with a showcasing of his sleight of hand skills and his, uh, you know, illusions and mentalist abilities or whatever. I, I felt like there were moments where I was taken out of it because I found myself questioning whether he was truly conveying how he feels which he ultimately addresses, I think, in a really artful way by the end where he, and this is after he's had members of the audience stand up and where he guesses or identifies the particular card they have chosen on the wall. And he really leaves you with a final sort of monologue in a way that's like that whole, essentially saying that whole exercise is a way, is a powerful way to participate in this feeling of being seen, being acknowledged for how we, you know, identify ourselves and how powerful that can be. But ultimately we still hold so many elements of ourselves 
in secret, or at least in particular moments, we don't reveal all that we are and all of the facets of our personality. And I thought that was a really powerful way to end because it's a, it's a recognition that at the end of the day, they've paid to be there. He's a performer, he's a magician. And there's so many aspects, even though he has been vulnerable in some moments, there are moments that he is strictly performing and engaging in that, in that almost transactional relationship. And there's so much that he's still not revealing. And so I'm still kind of wrestling with, with the different elements of the show. I mean, I think that gets to the heart of what is the most interesting ethos of this whole presentation. It's a question of how much do you believe what you're being presented with? It's a question of, do you believe that this is genuine magic or it's just sleight of hand? Do you believe that I am genuinely breaking down in front of an audience 500 plus times? Or do you think that this is the artificial performance and what that says about your expectations? Do you, uh, the, the big thing for me that really sold this whole experiment was that at one point he, he utilizes as a prop, as an extension of like one of these storytelling vignettes, uh, a golden brick and says like, hey, you know what? I'm going to transform this. This is going to become this object that represents this uh, individual grief or this this uh, this trauma of mine is going to become something else that you can all access. And so let's name a famous intersection in New York. How about Avenue A? Great. How about Third uh, Street? Great. So then he, he utilizes, like he builds a house of cards around it, blows the house of cards down and the brick is just gone. And then he pauses that if you go to that intersection, that brick will be there. And at the end of the movie, during the credits, Time after time, it's just people that have either seen a show or heard about it, and they go there capturing it on their cell phones, and the brick is there. And that's like, I don't think it's like some magic trick that he's doing. Like, it's not about him going there every week, replacing the brick. It's not like every time he sees a video, he's going to run down to that intersection, put a new one there. It is passed on to other people as an idea, as something that they can accept. And that is, in a way, a kind of magic. I think it could have been interesting to have a film approach that takes a step further back and really like examines the, the, the complexities of the show itself and has people really talk about their different perceptions of what the show is, what's it trying to accomplish. But that was just me. And, and I guess I got a lot of that just from researching about, cause now I'm totally fascinated about this whole, uh, about this whole show and about this dude. Well, yeah, go ahead, Connor. I think that's just a totally different product than what they were trying to make, like the making of or the MTV behind the scenes, you know, um, version of this, which I would also be fascinated in of like examining his relationship with the script and the development of it and audience reaction. So I think I appreciate the earnest attempt to recreate that theatrical experience for a home audience. And I love that it just doesn't hide the fact that this is filmed over multiple nights, like it embraces that. Um, we see about a dozen different people reading a letter that their own family member sent them, which is something I'm highly skeptical about, but deeply fascinated by. Uh, that's an element of the show every night for 500 and some odd performances. So I, I'm really enamored with the effort that was put in. And I think um, kind of like Mary Poppins, there's a mixture of animation and live action as well. Not the direct, you know, Doug Audio is like hanging out in this, these animated scenes, but it's a way there's extra voiceover. There's animated moments that kind of enhance the storytelling. So I'm, I was also just curious to hear your guys' thoughts on how those played, because for me, those animated scenes and those voiceovers kind of confused me. 
took me out of what this theatrical experience was going to be. I kind of wish it was sort of like we're going to embrace more theatrical or uh, cinematic kind of language or keep it more strictly theatrical language. It's sort of kind of how I felt about the inclusions of those more traditionally cinematic elements. Yeah, my immediate question was, is the audience being filmed experiencing that as well? Like, is there a screen on the side that is illustrating and and showing the animated sequencing that is being laid over the spoken narrative or are they just getting that? Um, which I don't get an answer to, but I would have been curious to know about. Yeah, I was kind of wondering about that too. And and does do the animation, anim, so they're animated um, sort of visualizations of the stories he's telling, like a major story he tells is the story of this rouletista, essentially a guy playing Russian roulette night after night and never losing as in, shooting himself with a gun, he keeps uh, anim- he keeps adding bullets. And the whole point of the story is that he keeps testing fate, essentially, and keeps of like skirting death. And it's like, at what point will he ultimately die? Uh, and it turns out that he doesn't die of playing Russian roulette. A robber comes and shoots him. But he, but Del Gaudio kind of returns to that uh, to that element. And I, and I do wonder whether the animations of that story enhance the story or take, or take you out of it. And I don't know if I necessarily go one way or another. What I will say is that a lot of the actual, um, production, like stage production elements are totally awesome. One of the, like when he tells that Rulatista story and finishes it, he's like, essentially acknowledging like, what was I not revealing to this person that was talking to me? He takes, he picks up a bottle, pulls off the label, folds a piece of paper into a boat and then fits the boat into the bottle and sets it into, uh, into the wall where these, there are these illuminated boxes create, depicts these like, um, sunset scenes. And it's absolutely stunning. And so those little moments, those little visual moments are beautiful. And I don't know whether the animation takes away from that or enhances the stuff that was actually being done on the stage. Yeah, it does feel like a kind of a strange remove the side. It, it creates some distance between the the performance and what is being spoken of in creating that layer of separation that is added animation and so on. I I, I suppose I'd agree with that. Um, be, I do think all the way be... the sleight of hand is captured is fantastic. All the card work, which like it, it's interesting because he's basically telling you this isn't magic. I just know how to do this. But also just like those other little moments where like after he like seemingly magically transports this this little paper boat into a bottle without having inserted it at all, he then goes to set it back where he got it, which is like a little pedestal. And suddenly this pedestal that he sets it on is no longer enough to support the weight of what he picked it off of suddenly that it crumbles into sand which is just an amazing like sleight of hand practical thing that yeah it does stand a little bit at odds with some of the added animation stuff i suppose although the the way that the sleight of hand is filmed i think is pretty spectacular i i totally agree with that and i think the production design is stellar if not a little on the nose with like, we have these six holes in the wall and throughout the night, all six of these holes will be interacted with in some way. Mm-hmm. And something at the end happens with these six cutouts in the wall. The inherent uh, roulette, yeah, that, that's, yeah. Yeah. So inherent roulette, like I get it. And then there's one left at the end. Yeah. I, I, I get it. I just would be, I appreciated that. But then part of me was like a little, 
okay, like this is just a small production off Broadway. Like the set design is really great for this theater experience. But if you're going to incorporate animation, it just feels like they did it for the storytelling just to kind of spice up the storytelling, which mm. I don't think the performance was captivating. You know, his performance is captivating enough where it's like, okay, if we're going to introduce animation, why not incorporate it in different parts? Like if we are trying to break down artifice, can we use the artifice of animation in ways to inform it throughout the piece? It just sort of felt like, well, Hulu's giving us money to do it. So let's just add it because we can to like try to make it a little more visually interesting than filming a guy talking on a stage, which, Mm, you know, just filming a guy talking at the camera is some of the most compelling cinema ever created in countless numbers of movies. So I'm just sort of like, yep. (laughs) So I'm just sort of like, I don't know, the, I thought the production design was so strong on its own that did we really need the animation? What was the animation adding to this narrative of audience interaction, artifice and self-discovery or self-acknowledgement? How did animation play into that? For me, it kind of distracted from it while great drawings and great animation, you know, style and compelling images to look at, I thought were kind of unnecessary for the film experience. I have a very specific question uh, about your reactions to when famous people started being identified in the audience. Uh, I don't know. It feels like, it feels like it muddies the waters of the, the broader abstract humanism of the idea. Cause like, obviously, yeah, we see Bill Gates and we associate him specifically with his, his thing. We see Larry Wilmore and we're like, oh, he has his thing. And like the idea is like deconstructing identity, knowing that there is a broader human being beyond that. But I can appreciate that more when it's a total stranger versus someone that has marketed themselves as something. There, That was definitely a moment where I was like, I feel like it's tiptoeing into like inspirational TED talk moment. Yeah, big time. <laughs> and I was like, I this show is so much more than that. If they had just had some like editorial restraint and restraint enough to be like, this is an impactful show. We don't need to prove it by depicting famous people that deem it worth enough to have spent money to go see it. Yeah. Um, Tim Gunn, just like crying. My roommates and I were like, was that Tim Gunn? And then is that Bill Gates? (laughs) So I don't know for that emotional intimacy, I was too caught up focusing on them. It does kind of take the moment away from people you don't know, too, when it's suddenly like, oh, Bill Gates, as opposed to like, you're a poet. And this is someone who acknowledges that and feels it in their soul and then sits down. And then it's like, oh, you're this isn't literally it, but it's like, oh, you're Bill Gates, the software designer. And he's like, yes, indeed. And then he sits down. <laughs> it, it For me, it was sort of like, yeah, exactly what you hit on. And then there's somebody who says, I am nobody. And that is mm. such like a pa- one of the most powerful that moments. Big, yeah. But then it's also like, oh, well, Bill Gates is there. And so <laughs> like, what does he need to learn about self-discovery? I guess everybody has their own journey of self-discovery and feel a self-worth. But the moment I uh, like, it just felt like a flex. I was like, mm, Bill Gates came to our show and mm. Stephen Colbert produced our show, you know, produced this film. And it just felt like it took away from, I mean, maybe you can view it as deconstructing audience anonymity. But yeah. I, I don't know. It felt like a flex rather than a, which maybe is just the cynical me, but I would rather see a million people pick the nobody card and him say that than one Bill Gates in the whole movie. Yeah. I think one of the uh, most fascinating parts of that sequence is the fact that 
in that whole setup, so people walk into the show, they see a whole wall of the cards, they pick any card that says I am. But at the end of the show, when it's the big reveal of him correctly identifying what card people pick, he first says every, or for those of you who feel like you responded to the prompt, honestly stand up. So not everyone in the audience stands up. And that I found particularly intriguing. And yeah, I mean, Maybe it's to limit the number of people he has to quickly memorize <laughs> and identify. <laughs> but just that there's that added unexpected element of, so this, the certainty in that space is everyone draws a card. But the uncertain element is how do people assess their own behavior and evaluate their own behavior, whether or not they chose something that they actually believe that they are, uh, which is a... It, I still am think was kind of thinking about. There were a lot of times where I made some like big eye rolls during the show. And um, it happened a lot in, in this particular moment um, because he knows what cards are available, right? He knows there's a nobody card. He knows there are, um, you know, other kind of like a, a emotionally heavy cards. So he knows somebody's going to pick it, right? But I just thought that that was like one surefire way of getting everyone else to be emotional as having someone pick and you identify uh, the nobody. And so I don't know. I, I thought that was like cheap. The one thing I think is interesting about that is that it never confirms or denies. I mean, it, it sort of does. Like it's like this notion that like he he goes through a score of people and then says in in one shot, which we can presume because it's pretty consistent is from the one, one show, one performance. And he's like, if I've got it right, then you can sit down. And like everyone he's done sits down. One thing I thought was, would be tremendously interesting is if we got some insight into if, and when he got it wrong, because if he did get it wrong, it proves the point of his show. People pick out what they feel encapsulates themselves in its entirety and then come to discover through the context of a show and the ethos that it presents that there is more to you than just the one thing you would self-assign uh, uh, based on a list of prompts. So like part of me hopes that like, I think it would be more ma more magical in a way if the audience simultaneously realized that like, hey, he's got mine wrong. I wonder if he got everyone else's wrong. And does that matter if in a way it's right because we all contain multitudes. We're not all one individual thing. It's more surprising if he gets it wrong and everyone agrees that that doesn't matter. So that question would be addressed in my filming of the, or film of the filming of the show. Uh, that is definitely a really great point. And I'm, I want to know all the answers to like all of the unique moments that things go quote unquote wrong, you know, within shows uh, to be fair is is how magic works. It's the questions of like, how does this work? And if it's wrong, would I know it? You know, and again, ties back to that notion of like, how willing am I to believe in quote unquote magic for this to work? And, you know, I, I, folks mentioned it towards the beginning, uh, this notion, not only performance of Del Gaudio, but audience performance. And would you be brave enough to be like, no, that was not mine after 25 people have been like, <laughs> oh my God, and like in tears. And you're like, all right, just roll with it. And you're like, yeah, you nailed it, buddy. <laughs> and then you sit down. But yeah, I mean, like so many 
so many questions. Uh, I would love to just see some of his like just straight up sleight of a hand stuff. I really love the <clears throat> sailor log story, the ship log and the book that somebody volunteered. We've talked about it um, a little bit. Somebody volunteers to be Mr. or Ms. Tomorrow. And then, you know, they get this book that they then have to basically give a synopsis of the show so far. And then they're checked out of the show in the last, I guess, 15, 20 minutes. And then come back the next day. They bring this book. They did their writing assignment. Uh, that's just like one of the most theatrical things ever. And it's just so brilliant and wonderful. And I really believed when he said, now, this is the most terrifying part of the night was the person who was here last night in the audience right now. And then the person stood up, the person's, you know, we see 12 or so different people stand up. They were there the night before. And that's just, that seemed genuine. He probably, if I, I would hope that he wouldn't know if somebody, if that tomorrow person um, was actually there. But I just love the idea of, then when he talks about this book contains things real and imagined, that's just like the human experience summed up in an exercise in a theatrical practice. And so I just really was enamored with that idea and thought that was for me personally, probably the most compelling part of the entire performance. And, and I think this is also what the film can uniquely achieve were close-ups of the various pages of the book versus if you were just sitting in the audience, you would be able to experience the reading of these people's stories, which would have been super powerful in and of its or in and of itself. Um, but the fact that the film depicts various illustrations and handwritings and, and really creative ways people uh, and directions people take. It also sort of ties back into the broader idea of like the golden brick I was talking about before. It's like, this is only magic if you're willing to participate in it to make it work, which is like the obligation of like coming back the next night. It's the obligation of like, hey, that brick's probably not there today. I need to spray paint a golden brick to leave it there to keep this going. It's like, there is like a, a sense of like communal obligation to the idea of magic, like like practical real world magic that we can all participate in at the core of this that I think is really poignant and really stands out for me. I think that was the moment, the end again, when, when I was sold on the golden brick idea, also sold me on that idea, Connor, the, the sense of honoring an obligation to making something that appears magical continue, perpetuating it. This probably sounds like the most like pretentious sentence ever, but it feels like postmodern, you know, Aristotle catharsis of like we are having this community experience on our phones of going to this avenue, this, you know, this intersection in Manhattan and finding this brick and feeling this sense of catharsis, not in the traditional sense of, oh, I'm overcome with emotion because Oedipus, you know, did all these things that are really horrible and tragic. But the idea of like, we've had this communal experience and it's validated, it's real, it's tangible. We can touch it, we, I can take it home. It's something incredibly unique that I've never really seen before in a theatrical experience. For me, the, the phone, the brick uh, phone footage right before the credits, it didn't hit home for me. And I wonder if it's because it was missing that communal element of having just experienced. And that's why I think that having gone to the show, it's kind of like you've experienced this performance with other people in the same room and you go your separate ways, but return to a spot and see something that's so 
singularly unique to the shared experience that you had with those other people in that room. I feel like part of me while I was watching that, I was like, that's what must be so unique about the show that I don't, in my opinion, can't necessarily be recreated in the, in the film, even though I I do, I like, you know, film is so connecting. You don't have to be in the same room to experience a shared like connection to a story and things like that. But that, that I felt, I wanted to feel the emotional weight of that, but yeah, magic is definitely one of those (laughs) wild things, but I always wished I was good at card. I only know one card trick and it's, you know, the easiest one in the book. So for those of you who maybe are familiar with this show or have seen this movie, I would be so, I think we all would be so, so curious to know your thoughts about, uh, about this production. This, this was definitely a meaty one. And, uh, I think everyone brought up some really, really fascinating points. And this is why I love talking about movies with you guys. And thank you, Courtney, for this suggestion. This was a blast to talk about if you're listening to this episode. And uh, we're going to continue our magic month with our magic month next week. Uh, looking forward to that, uh, to that pick. But in the meantime, want to uh, shout out Movie John Podcast Network, a whole collection of amazing podcasts out there. So be sure to check them out. Check out our socials. We're uh, Butter With That One on Twitter. We are Butter With That Podcast at gmail.com. And we're also on Instagram at Butter With That. I was getting so stressed when we get to this part because it's I can so, never remember. Guys, <laughs> listeners out there, I think we've said this before, but this is our most intense part of the whole podcast where we have to remember all the handles. That is really hard. For as much research as we do for each of these episodes, the hardest part is just naming the fucking socials. So <laughs> check them out. We're there. We're everywhere. And as we say, have a good whatever. We'll see you next week. Bye.